Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and this region. I'm Martin Pierce. Policy Forum Pod is a production of policyforum.net at Crawford School of Public Policy, the region's leading graduate policy school. If you want to find out how to take your policy career to the next level, you can check out our amazing range of degrees and short courses at crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study. There's something there for everyone. Now, this week's pod is something a bit special for us in a few ways. You may remember that a few weeks back we did our first ever live pod, The Great Green Debate, where a panel of experts tackled the question of whether Australia should declare a climate emergency. It was a brilliant event and one we had a lot of fun doing. And huge thanks once again to everyone who came along to that and to the ANU Learning Communities team for organising it. So at the event, we asked the audience to submit questions to our panel through a special app, and they did in huge numbers. In fact, we had far more questions than we could even get close to tackling on the night. So in our Policy Forum pod group on Facebook, don't forget to join us there, we asked our listeners what we should do. Should we get the panel back together or should we ask the panelists to provide us with some written answers for policyforum.net? And overwhelmingly, you asked us to get the dream team back together. So this This week, as the nation is ravaged by bushfire and drought, and as yet another political row breaks out over the role of climate change in all of this, we thought it was a good idea to get the gang back together and tackle some more of those questions that we weren't able to get to on the night of the event. Now, you know, I'm fond of a football analogy, and in football terms, you can think of this as the second leg of a cup clash, and I'm pleased to report that the team is almost at full strength with only a couple of substitutions. Unfortunately, one of our star players, John Hughes, is on a transfer to a board meeting, so we won't see him on the field today. And to continue my painful footballing analogy, we've replaced Sharon Bessel's Cristiano Ronaldo-like skills with the world-class Lionel Messi-like talent of Dr. Maria Taflago, who's right here with, with me in the studio. Hi, Maria, and thanks for stepping in. Well, with an entrance like that, I better perform. Hello, everyone. So Maria is the co-host of the brilliant Democracy Sausage podcast alongside Mark Kenny. She's also a lecturer in the School of Politics and International Relations here at the ANU. Maria, we'll get to our expert panel in a second, but first I'm interested in your views on the question we're going to be tackling today. You worked for a long time at the Press Gallery here in Australia. You've been around Australian politics for a long time, and you've done a lot of research into how politics and political parties work in Australia. So what do you think on this question? Should Australia declare a climate emergency? Well, I'm not sure if all listeners are aware of this, but um, last month, uh, in the middle of the month, the Australian Federal Parliament did try to declare a climate emergency, um, which was uh, voted down um, in the House of Representatives. Uh, But it was something that both Labor and the Greens uh, supported. And I mean, on face value, as we sort of have, I think, 11 years to try to reduce um, our net emissions, uh, as we are sort of surrounded by ever-warming uh, climate and uh, the consequences of that. We live on the driest continent on Earth and we are at the forefront of facing the climate change challenge. It does sort of seem that declaring a climate emergency would give the sort of seriousness to the sort of problems we face um, that government kinds of kind of needs. And I guess what I would sort of further say to that is that people often say, well, why should you declare a climate emergency? That's just symbolism. But the reality is if symbolism wasn't so important, if words didn't matter, if the assumptions we, un- we sort of set ourselves when we're sort of dealing with policy problems, then if these weren't important, then they wouldn't be resisted so strongly. 
Yeah, this week we saw Australia's Deputy Prime Minister, Michael McCormack, branding people, quote, raving inner city lunatics for linking climate change to the terrible bushfires across the nation. Does that suggest that the country is ready to have a kind of sensible adult conversation about whether it is or isn't a climate emergency? No, we haven't been able to have a sensible climate discussion on this um, really really ever. And it's a really depressing part of our politics that ultimately we are not able to get past the the deficits and the downsides of uh, climate, climate change. And we're not able to talk about the potential and the opportunities because Australia, I mean, I think Ross Garner wrote a book about this and released it last week, is at the forefront of being able to be a uh, green energy you know, powerhouse. He calls it a superpower. There are plenty of opportunities for us there, only if we sort of think imaginatively and creatively. And the reason why we can't talk about this sensibly is because uh, there are there are too many actors in the political system who want to maintain the economy and the structure of the way we live as it is now, because they're afraid or because their supporters back these kinds of actions. So we actually need to persuade them that it's in their political and economic interests to move with the times. So what do you think, listeners? Have the events of this week changed your mind about whether we should declare a climate emergency? You can let us know in all of the usual ways. On Twitter, where we're at Policy Forum, you can email podcast at policyforum.net or best yet, join our growing Facebook group. You can find us there as Policy Forum Pod. So Maria, how about you give us the team news and lineup for this return clash? Well, that would be my pleasure. First up, we have Dr. Liz Hanna. She is a senior fellow at the ANU Fenner School and the Climate Change Institute. She was also the founding president of the Climate and Health Alliance. And then we have Shane Rattenbury, MLA in the ACT. He's the ACT Greens member for the Kurrajong electorate and uh, Minister for Climate Change and Sustainability. And the final member in our panel is Dr. Imran Ahmad, Honorary Associate Professor at the ANU Fenner School. And he has been the founding director of the Future Earth Australia, where he led and established the Global Sustainability Initiative in Australia and Oceania. Yeah, it's a great lineup. And we had a fantastic discussion last time, which I'm really looking forward to continuing. And as I said, all the questions on this week's podcast were submitted by the audience at the event on the evening. So huge thanks to everyone who asked them. You've made us sound very informed and intelligent and made the script writing a whole lot simpler. So with all that out of the way, let's get into it. Well, welcome back. It's great to have you all in the studio. So hello to you, Liz Hanna. Greetings. Hello. Hello to you, Shane Rattenbury. Hello. And hello to you, Imran Ahmed. Hello. It's wonderful to have the gang back together. So we'll get to our audience questions in a second. And as I said, we've got lots of them to get through, and I'm excited to hear your answers about it. But first, I'm interested in uh, what all of the panel has made of the sort of public debate around climate change this week in the wake of the terrible bushfires and droughts that have uh, uh grip the country. Do you think that it's done anything to change how people or politicians are thinking about climate change? Perhaps, Shane, if we start with you. Look, it's hard to judge what the impact of it's going to be, Martin, but what I, I've been stunned by the politicisation of it this week, uh, particularly the suggestion now is not the time to talk about climate change. In a week in which we are seeing our fire authorities, our scientists telling us these are unprecedented fires, uh, never seen on this sort of scale in this time frame in Australia. Uh, then it is, I think, an appropriate discussion to be having. You know, I've seen suggestions that you shouldn't talk about it while we're in the middle of it, but there are people talking about we should be doing more backburning. So people are talking about causal issues. They're talking about what responses we should be making. And I think in that context, it is entirely appropriate to have a conversation about, well, we are in this extremely dry period, temperatures are higher than usual, unusual wind patterns. These sort of questions warrant discussion. Well, just from a Politics 101 perspective, this issue is really salient right now because it is a crisis. And so it is not surprising at all that people want to talk about it. And just as you sort of said, I think what is a bit sort of disappointing, I suppose, is that the same people that are telling us that it now is not the appropriate time to be discussing that are then on the very next foot, you know, sorry, but 
actually seeking to blame other political actors, uh, you know, most typically the Greens for, you know, too much red tape or too much regulation. So I think there's a lot of sort of hypocrisy um, at this time, which is essentially, I think, trying to protect politicians from scrutiny and the accountability that um, is essential at this time. And people are looking for explanation. You know, I've met firefighters who've come back from some of those North Coast fires and they're chatting with locals who are saying these areas have never burned before. And so people are seeking explanation. They want to understand what's going on because they're seeing things that no one's experienced previously in the areas that they live in. Well, they want to be reassured as well that emergency services and governments will actually respond and respond in a way that acknowledges the fact that um, the climate is is changing and that the nature of disasters is changing. And, and I think that is what is frustrating so many people. And, and I, think, and, well, I was just thinking, I mean, there are two other key points here, I think, to be made. One is that... It's the conservative side that have actually politicised it because if you look around the world, the only countries where there's there's not universal agreement are those with big, large fossil fuel um, bits sitting in their ground. So it's it's the protection of that that's actually politicised it. So it's not you know you can't say politicisation comes from the, the side of those who are trying to protect the environment. Um, and the second thing that I'm really really pleased to see is that the those who would otherwise be categorised as the conservative folk have been saying no, this is real. We we believe in climate change because again what people might see in the media is and get the impression that all the farmers don't believe it, that all the rural people don't believe in it. And then we've heard time and time again by the mayors, by farmers, by people out there fighting fires, that they they get it. They absolutely get it. So I think that might help in terms of dissuade those who think that I'm on that side of politics, therefore it's okay to deny or, or not believe in it. Imran, you were quoted in an ABC story earlier this week on this connection between climate change and the bushfires that are gripping the country. And you said, if we can't talk about it now, when can we talk about it? Which suggested a sort of kind of exasperation. Is that how you feel about the kind of public discourse at the moment? Yes, I think from a political point of view, it's it's very, very disappointing to see that um, uh, some of the leaders talking about uh, um, saying that we should not talk about the linkages and and. Well, this is exactly the time where we should be thinking about the root causes of the crisis. It is a natural uh, a disaster, but what's happened over the years in the last 30 years, given the temperature increase, the the conditions uh, have – climate change has exacerbated the conditions uh, under which uh, bushfires happen. So we've, we've got greater frequency, greater intensity now. It's uh, in, in New South Wales, it's over 500,000 hectares, and it's come much earlier. Summer hasn't even started. That is an astonishing amount. This just, is just this to, to is stop I there th- for a second. Five hundred thousand hectares. Yeah, this is this is and 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 the other problem is that uh, scientists have been telling us. I mean, this is not something that's come out of the blue. Uh, Bureau of Meteorology has written reports. Climate Council has done a study um, a few years ago. So it, it it's very much up in there. Um, like I said in the in, in previously, we are living in an age of adaptation. And this is now upon us. So we deal with the immediate crisis, that is for sure. And we have, uh, we have firefighter, the emergency response. We, we need to now look at a response over the longer term as well. If we don't do it now, the, it will, the cost would go very high and it will affect a lot more people and area in future. Well, we've had a lot of questions from our listeners. Um, and some of them go to the politics, so we can be in there. Um, and so, Shane, to you first, how can we depoliticize the climate debate and where might this leave the Greens? Yeah, look, I think it is challenging to work this out because you know, here in the ACT, we've just released a new climate strategy, but back in September. And I've been surprised by some of the political reaction to that. Some of the measures that are in there have been, I think, misrepresented. Uh, and so you do see we're, we're in this real pattern of politicization of these issues. For me, it really comes back to the science. The science is very clear. Uh, Imran's just made the point we're in this age of adaptation now. You know, we are thinking about what a new normal looks like. And from a bushfire fighting point of view in Australia, that's one of the things we're going to have to consider, dry conditions on an ongoing basis. These are very real issues that we need to confront in the political system. And I, we need to find a way to deal with it. 
and to have sensible conversations. It's much more science-driven and less about ideology and less about vested interests. Liz, there was a question for us, which I'm going to throw to you, which, which, which I think is a good one. How do we in- address the internal bias of leaders who are 50-plus years old who will be, quote, dead by the time things go wrong? But it, look, if we knew the answer to that, <laughs> they wouldn't still be holding on to those views. So it's it's tricky. Um, it's really tricky. And it gets back to the way people learn and absorb information. Um, and it's there's clearly swathes of the population who, who who don't take their information from science. You know, they, they, they're more values driven and they believe people that are on their side, whether it be their faith or their, you know, their heroes or, <clears throat> or that. So until such time as we can get again, that brick by brick by brick in moving and shifting, you know, the entire population's attitude, then we might see changes. And, and this is where it's been really useful with the, you know, the school strike and the youngsters. Um, and indeed, as I was mentioned a moment ago, the, the, uh, the voices coming through from the rural communities and farmers and mayors in, in rural districts. So <clears throat> it's a, it, it'll be a gradual shifting until such time as, um, uh, it becomes untenable. So there's um, ge- a generational shift to it, come. It, it's slow and, and generational shift and, and hopefully being pushed by um, more and more. I mean, they'll increasingly be feel, feeling as if they're, they're on the outer in that they're holding on to sort of dinosaur type views and nobody else is hanging on to that. And then they'll suddenly realize that perhaps I ought to be quiet about this now and maybe I was wrong. Well, on that note, um, to Imran, um, what can we do to make the act of declaring a climate crisis more meaningful and efficacious? Do you think Australia has the potential to lead and be an example for other nations? Yeah, of course, Australia uh, has has a def- has has a great potential to lead. Uh, I think people like Ross Garner and others are talking that we can become a, a renewable energy superpower. Uh, what I would say is that is uh, if we remove the political barriers. Uh, that's one of the key uh, key barriers in 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 preventing that. Um, cli- um, climate change is not yet a bipartisan issue, which it should have been, given the state of knowledge we have. We're still debating in Australia whether climate change is a man-made issue or not. Although a vast amount of uh, community and and the uh, they are they believe in climate change, but. Uh, the reality is that that discussion is still ongoing where the rest of the world is actually moving on and taking uh, real action. So if we look at our climate policies, we, we need to really scale those up. Um, we, we need uh, aggressive policies to, to advance renewable energy. Uh, in Australia, I think we have, we have Shane here and others in uh, the, in the States. They're, they're, Doing a fabulous job in terms of advancing uh, clean energy uh, and going towards carbon neutrality. I think if this is this model is picked up, we can uh, we can really show to the rest of the world. Being a G twenty country, we have the resources to be able to do that. And um, uh, the fact that we're still there is there's some in the debate which is saying we just have one point two or one point three percent of global emissions. And we should, um, uh, it doesn't matter actually what people forget is on a per capita level, Australia is, is a very significant, um, uh, emissions player. So I think, I think people get this wrongly. So we, 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 we have quite a room and I think there's, there are lots of studies done by Climate Change Authority and others which are asking for significant mitigation commitments that is actually going to bring us a lot of uh, um, uh, technology and and jobs in the future and and on that point yes you're right that our our emissions uh, generated and burned here are 1.3 but if you include our exports that puts us something like second to saudi you know it's 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 huge our contribution hence the fact we really should stop dicking it up and selling it off Shane, we've got a question which goes to sort of political influence and who mm. has the ear of politicians. And the question is, would banning donations from the fossil fuel industry and their lobbyists solve the problem of inaction by political parties? I think that would be a great starting point. I think that there is a level of influence there that 
you know, it clearly defies the science. And so it makes you beg the question, what is going on in the system that people can take these positions that are so clearly contrary to what we know needs to be done? You know, I think we get a long way very quickly in Australia, if we, and it goes back to the earlier question of how do we break this partisan issue. If there was a general acceptance of the science of where we need to get to, then you'll have a debate about how best to get there. But that's an entirely different conversation. If you're actually all rowing in the same direction, then you're much more likely to make rapid progress. And so taking the influence of the fossil fuel industry out of the politics in Australia would be a great start. Well, we have the final question on this subject um, is one that I think sort of um, speaks to all of us in some ways, and that is, that's to everyone here, what is the government thinking? Why don't they care? Do they have any brains? Do they have any hearts? (laughs) Are they robots? (laughs) Who wants to have a crack at that? I'll just start with that. I I, I think that, let's be kind. I I think think governments um, uh, look at their political constituency and that's where they they come from. Um, uh, And and I think we, uh, coming from a citizen point of view, we we need to do a better job at convincing the community so that the voting base is is really pushed into uh, getting – uh, better informed people in parliament. So there is, there is, there is dual responsibility. Um, having said that, uh, any government that comes in is tied into its, to its, uh, vested, uh, to its base. So, um, so I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go to that extent. I mean, I would say so that they're, they not do, they're not robots. They're not They do human. have brains, but probably if they start looking at, uh, start seeing, uh, the science. What the scientists are saying, uh, and asking the policymakers to do that would be a big help. Uh, the problem is that they should accept what science is saying. I love that question. It really goes to the kind of exasperation thing. I think it goes is just some laziness of analysis. You know, uh, it's not unlike the marriage equality debate, where I think a vast swathe of the community knows what needs to be done, but strangely, the politics is somewhere behind that. Uh, certainly, research we've done here in the ACT shows that our community strongly supports climate action, sort of 85% or so have an expectation that government should take a strong leadership role. Now, the ACT is probably a bit of a, uh, you know, not typical of Australia in that sense. You get more diverse views in other parts of the country. But I think across the country, people have a, a different expectation and the politicians are a bit behind on it. Yeah. And, and I I disagree with you there in that, not, uh, not you, Shane, but in the fact that if they were voting for their constituency, then they would have been voting for the marriage equality, which most of Australia wanted. They would be voting because poll after poll after poll has been telling telling politicians that, yes, we do want um, uh, the environment protected, that we do want climate change addressed. Um, and so I would argue, and there's, you know, so many things with the abortion issue going on in Sydney. I mean, that was bizarre. The, you know, and totally against what the population wants. So I'm not entirely sure that they are totally committed, some of them, totally committed to what their constituents are. I think it's, I think it could be something holding on to maybe, you know, deeply held ideology that's within parties. Um, I mean, we've got a living, breathing, walking, talking politician here, but I mean, that's not necessarily of the same ilk of some of the conservative. I ones. can confirm he's not a robot. As well. <laughs> yeah. I just want to add to what Liz had said. I, I think maybe I, I, I probably didn't explain my point clearly. I think this is one of the points uh, with their service out there that we that Australia is a very climate aware and wants climate action. But we just had an election, and which was uh, the outcome was totally against what the polls had predicted. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of the factors that I that I chip in is, and and that's that's uh, is that in in communities where it matters to them, Townsville in in Queensland, um, I think there has to be a better conversation. I think the messages have to be more clearer because there there are pu- pushback forces that are working at astronomical speed. And so the messages have to be passed to the communities in better way. There is the science is clear. The communication has to be better so that it translates into voting patterns. I, if if that were true, Liz, we would have a we would have had a different outcome in the election. So there, I, there is there there is a certain factor that is playing in terms of the voting behavior. Well, I, I, it, it, 
you've got to remember that when people are voting, they're, they're not voting on a single mm. issue. They're balancing it against yes. all other kinds of issues. And that's the problem that climate change as a policy space has really struggled to gain traction um, in public policy spaces for, for all the reasons that everyone's already sort of said. But it's also because it is, it's balanced up against, you know, economic factors. Um, and when pitted, pitted in that, those terms at the moment in Australia, that, um, those sets of arguments seem unconvincing or frightening to voters. And I think the Australia Talks survey that the ABC ran found that the, the largest proportion of people who were prepared to spend something on climate change a year it was $100 to $500. So the, the commitment of um, individuals there is sort of fairly modest in terms of, like I guess, the sort of scope of the problem that we um, face. And, and basically what we need to actually do is – um, we need to not hector people um, sort of, you know, and sort of constantly telling them about the science. Like what we need to do is we need to sort of tell them stories about their lives, like the way climate change impacts their health, the health of their loved ones, the health of their grandparents, the way um, it can or could shape our economy. I think so long as we keep talking about it as an environmental issue, people will simply say, well, I can't feed my kids, so why am I going to care about the environment? It, those stories need to be linked together. They need to be human stories. Now, um, I want to move on to talking about very briefly about the economics of uh, addressing climate change and, uh, a climate and, and declaring a climate emergency. On Monday's Democracy Sausage podcast, which Maria did with Mark Kenny, there was a great discussion with David Spears, who's the soon-to-be mm. host of ABC's Insiders, and they were talking about the Labor review into its election loss. And one of the things that really stood out for me was the panel analysing how stumped Labor got around what its climate policies would cost the country. And we had a lot of questions about the economics. So Shane, a, a straightforward question for you, I guess. Are market-based or government-based solutions the best way to tackle climate change? I think the great challenge of climate change, and it goes to the previous comment that Maria was just making, is that it so fundamentally is a shift in the way we do things. You know, the way we have built our economy up over the last century, you might say, has been detrimental to the climate. So to have a climate-friendly society and economy requires really significant changes. So it's very hard to quantify that in some ways. I think it's also commonly seen to be a negative thing to have to do, and yet there are many positives. For example, here in the ACT, to get to 100% renewable electricity, we've let all these contracts, that has led to $500 million of investment in the ACT over the 20-year life cycle of those contracts. So I think too often tackling climate change is seen the negative. I think there are a lot of economic opportunities, but they are many, many different things, and it's about analysing each of them as we go, rather than saying climate change is too big and too expensive to deal with. Uh, I would add to this, I mean, it's an excellent point by Shane. Um, we, uh, wherever transition has happened, and we are talking about a transition from a fossil fuel-driven economy uh, to a carbon-neutral economy. Now, markets won't do it on its own. Private sector is important. That's where the uh, uh, things are going to happen. But enabling policies have to come from the government. That without that, it is not going to happen. So we, we're not asking for big government. We're not, I mean, it's it's not about uh, a leftist stance or whatever. It's it's The research has clearly shown the markets are going to act, particularly in a transition way. And given the scale that is required, we need enabling policies. And all over the world where transition has happened, and, and particularly in light of what the scientist uh, has, is telling us that we have to change part within 10 years to get to a carbon neutral economy by 2050. So you need aggressive enabling policies for that. And I also think there, at another point here, and I think that's been pretty much a failure of economics or failure of the way economics is being discussed, I guess, is that it only measures a very narrow component of society. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't. You know, as we've known for a long time, that you know, all that sort of non-market contribution to society is not not covered. The ecological services are not are not in, sort of embedded into those um, economic arguments. And and so when um, when I was president of the Climate and Health Alliance, we um, contracted a study to examine what's the health costs of coal in the Hunter. 
Uh, and that's billions of dollars, $2.6 billion a year in healthcare costs to Australians. That's never, that's never factored into the argument. It's always termed and couched, which is frightening and spooks the horses, as it were, um, in thinking, oh dear, you know, we're going to, you know, we might lose some money if we switch over to something else. Well, we're not measuring the real cost, which is health cost to the health budget and people's loss of earnings, loss of life, out of pocket expensive for health. And that's just the health. You know the health cost in one small valley. Well, so you ramp this up all across Australia. The 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 costs of fossil fuel is absolutely massive, and that really should be incorporated in so that people get a genuine idea of the full cost benefit rather than just you know a narrow slice, which is very convenient to people who might be thinking in terms well, Liz, of Well, Liz, how how do we convince precisely these communities that they will have jobs for them in a carbon neutral economy? Um, the well, we know that the growth in um, uh, growth in jobs globally uh, of renewable energies outstrips uh, fossil fuels by by a massive margin. And Australia, as we <clears throat> pardon me, as we also know that we you know we're so rich and and blessed in terms of renewable assets that um, I mean that we're really quite silly not to not to capitalise on those and particularly. As we, again, coming from the health sector, we're very acutely aware that if people lose their jobs and they be, you know, end up being thrown to the economic scrap heap, that's very bad for your health, very bad for your mental health, physical health, you know, social cohesion, the whole lot. And so those communities that first stand to lose from immediate jobs in the, in the for example, fossil fuel industries are the ones that really ought to be targeted. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. First, with renewable areas to not only clean up the air in those areas, but also provide some financial um, boost into their into their economies. I just want to add to this point, Maria. Um, this is a very difficult conversation, particularly where uh, the fossil fuel jobs are are at stake. Um, if you speak to mayor of Townsville, I mean the whole. Ta- I mean where coal jobs and uh, the community feel coal jobs is where jobs are coming from, and. And it contributes, uh, they think it contributes to the economy. That conversation is very challenging. Now, how to, uh, you're talking about people's wallet, their people's uh, filling, you know, livelihoods. Uh, it's a difficult conversation. I think where that's where probably uh, uh, the role of both uh, state governments and Commonwealth, in the sense, in support role, comes in in terms of providing a just transition to have sorts of measures that uh, the community feels that if it's going to lose out from this sector, there are other jobs in place. So some demonstration projects and things need to be set up because it is it has to be a phased approach. We're talking about livelihoods of people, and it is a very difficult conversation to have. I'm interested in the politician's view of this. Shane, you are a politician in the ACT, and the ACT is broadly behind some kind of some kind of action on climate change but if you were a politician in Mackay or Townsville how would you go about convincing people that you know these people who work in the mining sector that there is a job for them as as Maria said in the carbon neutral economy there's no doubt that is a tricky ask but I think if you look at climate change you can from an economic point of view describe it as the greatest market failure ever seen We've seen enormous privatisation of profits mm. and socialisation of the costs. Uh, and that is that sums climate change up in an economic sentence. Uh, and so for me, governments have a role to play to address market failures. You know, that's fundamentally how the system works. And so I think uh, that probably becomes your starting point in terms of taking those communities along with us. It's actually, it's, it requires some genuine leadership to have the hard conversations with people and not to sort of fall into those lazy sort of sledging of latte sipping greenies in the city. Just to be put on the record, I've never drunk a latte in my life. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it, it needs greater leadership and it requires some imagination as well. It does require us to think carefully. And Imran 
flayed the notion of a just transition. That is a really important part of our climate transition. We've done it here in the ACT where we're looking at things like as we transition to having a uh, fully electric bus fleet, for example, we'll have a team of diesel mechanics who will no longer be needed by action. We can't just throw them on the scrap heap. We need to think carefully. And there's thousands of those little examples around that we need to plan carefully through. I mean, for me, one of the great travesties with the Hazelwood coal-fired power station's closure was that that had been talked about for a decade. People knew Hazelwood needed to close, but no government ever put in place a transition plan. And when it finally did close, with six months warning because the private company that owned it decided it was no longer economic to keep it going, that community took it in the neck from a complete failure to plan and what was an economically rational decision by the private owners of that power station. We cannot allow those sort of things to be replicated across Australia. Well, I guess on this sort of subject, um, you know, one question we have is many developing countries can't afford renewable uh, energy initiatives due to their economic situation. So what should we be doing about these uh, countries? What do you think, Imran? I think there are mechanisms in place. Uh, developing countries, if you look what's uh, from their NDC national developed contributions uh, that have been presented to the climate treaty, they've they've offered a lot of measures. I mean, funding, international funding, is needed. Um, to put this in perspective, there is there is an international funding body, Green Climate Fund, and Australia has this year announced that it will stop contributing to that funding body. So now, being a G20 country, and we are no longer a contributor to GCF. I, I think that's 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 that shows um, bad um, uh, bad leadership in terms of uh, providing the finance. Um, so we need we need those funding me- mechanisms in place. The GCF uh, replenishment that happened this year, they've got about ten billion dollar of commitments from countries. US is also not contributing. Australia is. So I'm just giving you an example. Uh, of uh, international funding mechanisms, and one one is GCF. The other is the private sector is also investing a lot. There is um, in terms of viable projects. So there is a, what what we have seen. Uh, the problem is not just not simply lack of funding. It's also uh, a lack of measures to actually get that funding and lack of capacity in developing country to absorb that funding. So there are a couple of things. Uh, that are required. Multi-chain problems. Yes. Yes. And one of the things also is that, um, and particularly with the sustainable development goals, um, not only you've mentioned Jeff and the and and private sector, but there's a, an enormous amount of aid organisations who are recognising that to pull countries and to pull communities out of sort of energy poverty, um, they. Literally, they cannot afford poles and wires, hence the fact it's actually cheaper for them to go straight to renewable and bypass that whole expensive infrastructure. So that counters your original question in terms of they can't afford it. It is cheaper for them to have – and we've seen so many examples of sort of solar panels on bus stops, you know, and lighting up communities and, you know, little wind turbines – um, in local communities that are, that are hard to get to, um, and that allows them to read at night and continue their sort of economic productivity and study for school, etc. So it's it, again, it's it's counter to that argument that developing countries cannot afford it because it is it is cheaper and saves all those horrible poles and wires. And we've seen examples of like that where developing countries, people have now got mobile phones across the developing world. They skipped the phase mm-hmm. where they had landlines because it was actually cheaper and quicker and the technology sort of leapfrogged over them. And it's the same with renewables now. You know, we're at a point where the cheapest new form of energy is either wind or solar. You know, it doesn't make economic sense to build a coal-fired power station anymore, both in terms of the actual power station and the infrastructure Liz was referring to. So that's the opportunity we have is to actually help the developing world skip the fossil fuel generation and go straight to a cleaner future. So I do want to move on and talk a little about community political engagement. We had a lot of questions about Extinction Rebellion and the role that that organisation can play. So I want to pick up on a couple of those. Liz, firstly, would declaring a climate emergency signal that it's time for major peaceful disruptive actions? Um, I'd say absolutely yes. Um, because again, if you think about, if you take everything back to the sort of ground level here, the reason we got ourselves globally, collectively, we got ourselves into this pickle is because of our behavior and our consumption patterns. Um, And so behavior and attitudes lie at the core of this. So calling it for what it truly is, 
um, an emergency because we're we're speaking in terms of potentially the end of the human race, you know, or, or or collapsing of our population to a very small number. That's not a pretty that's not a pretty thing. So it really definitely is an emergency, and hence the fact we need to get that through our heads so that we all do alter our behaviours because we know that there are so many options out there that are, that do not involve. Um, uh, fossil fuels and, and, and contributing to the problem. Um, and the other thing, of course, is that we're also trying to promote is that there's the intergenerational equity and all the generations prior have worked their damnedest to try to make the life better for their next, their next generation coming through. Um, and so for us collectively to, to have all the science, know what we're doing and, and still be a bit reticent to to be able to make that shift so that the toddlers of the world can actually live to live to the happy old age of 70 in a in a happy and fulfilling life with you know clean air stable climate not be burnt out every year you know not be flooded you know we 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 owe them that so again it's getting the message through so that people realize and again we like the first people that burnt the bra, it's a very brave move to be the first people to go and buck the system. So hence the fact it's really important to get all of the communities so it becomes sort of socially accepted and the norm to be able to identify that, oh dear, we do have an issue, we have to act and we have to act in every possible way that we can, such as riding your bicycle here today, which I didn't have ashamed of. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to add, um, these uh, peaceful protest measures are actually a key part, particularly in climate action, in, in mobilizing climate action, because this, the transition that we need to make uh, to a carbon-neutral pathway requires aggressive climate action, and particularly these 10 years are extremely critical. So um, so these school strikes, uh, pro- protests done by Extinction Rebellion, are very helpful, and I think uh, one of the confusion um, that is caused by by some political leaders saying that these people are on new start or or on welfare. Actually, I met one Extinction Rebellion uh, person um, recently, and he told me that he's a retired school teacher, and they actually did a survey of uh, what is the composition of their group. And they did not have anybody on New Start allowance, and so it, it is. It is you in fact, for a job a day. You don't have time to go to so extinction rebellion. So these these are the people that are very very committed. They are they're protesting peacefully, and are are not lunatics, uh, and are not on welfare. No, the Generally. government is trying to to um, discredit the the movement because it, it it makes difficult questions for them to answer. Shane, I have a really curly question from a from someone. Um, any advice for a conflicted public servant who wants to join Extinction uh, Rebellion? If I'm not allowed, is my salary hush money? <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Um, look, I think uh, as far as the public, you know, to give a formal answer to that, the public service rules allow you to uh, do things outside of work that. You are allowed to be a member of a political party. You're allowed to participate in a range of community organisations. But you so, can't send emails. Apparently not, yeah. So it's probably a little less black and white than it used yeah. to be. But there's no reason why somebody hmm. could not participate. I mean, going back to the previous question, if if a true climate emergency was declared, we wouldn't need Extinction Rebellion. If a proper climate emergency was put in place and government got on with the job and it worked with the community and it worked with the private sector and it worked with our academics to actually get on with it, I think all the Extinction Rebellion people would be perfectly happy. They'd go home and they'd be participating in the, the sort of community actions and the, and the forward-going stuff. But there's a desperate role for people to draw attention to the need for serious action. And for me, Extinction Rebellion is a, a reflection of the frustration in the community at the lack of action and their sense of knowing that something needs to be done and it's desperate times. And it's almost predictable that those who are against this, to, to frame them as, as you know, dreadlocks, rainbow-coloured wearing, unemployed, dope-smoking hippies as compared to, you know, knitting grannies, you know, just normal human beings who actually do believe this and actually have a compassionate compassionate care. And, and it's as bizarre as, as that recent thing is trying to uh, blame the environmentalists for being selfish. What? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's the total antithesis. So it's, again, it gets into playing mind games and they employ really 
you know, sort of highly salaried people to actually orchestrate. This is coming out of the um, the marketing world and, or dare I say it, um, and also the whole tobacco thing. And that's actually convincing and, you know, playing games with our mind and convincing people that those people who think that are therefore the other. They're bad. They're wrong. I wouldn't want to be like that. So I will hang on to these sort of bizarre views. And it sort of normalizes it and it makes those really quite curious attitudes and beliefs seem okay. And again, it's just psychological mind game, gaming. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's an orchestrated campaign. We could have predicted it. I just want to add one more point as an example. Uh, the government of UK, which is very, very active on climate change and has, has done significant, very significant measures, one of the things that they were about to do was subsidize fracking industry with a billion pound uh, public money. And um, pro and and protest measures uh, like Extinction Rebellion help mobilize uh, public opinion against it, and the government withdrew. So these these sometimes these measures are helpful in 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 taking corrective action by the government. Uh, Boris Johnson in the UK, of course, referred to uh, Extinction Rebellion and the people taking part in the climate strike as crusties. Uh, yeah. Shortly before it came out, his yeah. own father was yeah, actually on one of those uh, <laughs> on one of those marches. So, look, we've we talked a little about the community political engagement. I want to t- move on to talking about some a uh, couple of questions that we had around the sort of practicalities of declaring a climate emergency. I'll start with you, Les. Um, quite a long question here. The question was, how much power should we give the government in dealing with a climate emergency? And there was a connected question as well, which said, what if a government were to declare climate emergency powers to prevent free speech or punish political opponents? How do we protect social cohesion while taking emergency action, which may harm some groups? Do we trust government? Yeah, well, not this one. Um, Yeah, that's complicated in terms of trusting you know, giving them the authority to to silence, that's, I'm not entirely sure where that question would come from. If it was, you know, mandating that we had to, had to behave reasonably, well, we sort of did that with smoking quite well, Um, you know, and eventually that absolutely changed the societal attitude into realising that smoking is bad for you, therefore we shouldn't do it. It fouls the air that we're breathing. I don't want to breathe your, breathe your horrible, nasty tobacco smoke. Um, you have to go outside to do it. And then, of course, they got to be recognised as, you know, sort of social outcasts who were standing out in the street corners smoking. Well, I mean, the same thing can happen with sort of this whole pressure towards it's expected. It's community expected. And we've seen beginnings of it with, um, you know, flight shaming um, and the attitudes in terms of uh, rather than people being regarded as a nuisance on a bicycle to, well, why aren't you on your bicycle? Um, and so that's a mindset that can happen. The mechanisms that governments would employ to do that is tricky. But again, the way we've, as far as sort of public health is concerned and how we've altered behaviours is it's a multifactorial approach. So there's been incentives. We use uh, champions in advertising. We use um, taxes um, as in sort of the, the carrot and the stick plus, plus, again, playing with the psychology to make people realise that this is actually a good thing to do and aren't you a good human being because you're on board with this sort of altruistic attitude. So it's – and government can actually play away in that in, and that's in terms of, again, incent carrots and sticks – in the financial what? sort of manipulation. Well, Imran, I have a question for you. So yeah. should we worry about uh, declaring a climate check emergency and that it will create an impetus for poorly thought out actions in the midst of a moral panic? I don't think we should w- worry about that. We already uh, are in panic doing nothing. Um, so so I, I think, I think uh, declaring climate emergency is a good sort of uh, statement to have. But it has to come with uh, uh, policies and measures. Um, one of the things that we tend to confuse about is dealing with climate change. We are really dealing, talking about the whole economy. Um, Liz talked about smoking, and there's a particular concern, a health issue. It could be directed um, in, a, in, in a particular way. When we're talking about climate change, it, it affects every single sector of the economy. The carbon is everywhere. You're talking about meat consumption. You're talking about how you, 
how you uh, how you get to your office you're talking about uh, basically every single thing the 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 challenge is i think there are two sort of players one that sort of play the doomsday scenario and the other that sort of talk about the opportunities i think we have to do both the science is pretty clear in terms of what's happening and i don't want to get back to the bushfire debate which we, which we which we had which is clear linkages we are clearly seeing what's happening but what people don't understand they look at climate change as a cost it is it is actually an opportunity for the future that message has to be has to come through uh, policies and unfortunately people start thinking about big government and and you know and and the whole government agenda but but like we discussed before it is it is about a transition pathway where governments come in so you need to in order not to have that panic you need to have these policies and measures uh, to to actually support uh, an aggressive climate action and Shane, a question for you, which sort of follows on from that, and this is a question I, that you've had to think about in the context of the ACT declaring a climate emergency. How do we overcome the danger of declaring a climate emergency without meaningful action to follow? Because Scott Morrison could come out today and say, yes, we have a climate emergency, but that mm -hmm. doesn't actually commit him to doing anything about it. No, it doesn't. But I think the act of declaring it creates a framework and an environment that then has an expectation that goes with it. And then governments can be held to account for that. So certainly here in the ACT, you know, we declared a climate emergency in May. And for me, that means that when government sits around and thinks about the various steps we're taking, that question should be there every time we're thinking about whether it's an infrastructure investment or a range of other policy decisions. One of the key questions on the table must be, is this good for the climate? Is this good for our greenhouse gas emissions profile or not? I think if, you know, to use your example, if Scott Morrison was to declare one, then he'd be rightly being held to account on, well, what are you doing to actually deliver it? And that's that's the strength of democracy and the parliamentary system we have that uh, would be out there. But, you know, yes, we need to be careful of greenwashing, uh, but I think that our we've got enough robustness in the media, in the parliamentary processes that I think that gets found out fairly quickly. Well, Liz, do you think declaring a climate emergency would actually effectively confront the sort of psychology of denial that we've been talking about? Uh, yes, because again, back to the sort of analogy I was using before in terms of, you know, sort of another brick in the wall, you know, and just little chunks at a time, little chunks at a time, um, and to, uh, you know, for, for that mindset to, to, to permeate and become the accepted norm will ultimately um, change it. And I think also a, a, another bit is that, and more people need to recognize that it's much more joyous to live in a, in a, in an environment that's not, you know, polluted and fiery and flooding and heat wavy, et cetera, that it's actually quite nice. So there's an attitude almost as if I'm giving up something and, and it's going to be a, a bad and hard, hard and difficult shift and I'm going to lose out because psychologically people uh, are more concerned about missing or losing something they have rather than gaining something that they might do. And again, it's that's why that sort of um, uh, documentary that was around recently, 2040, uh, and highly recommend that because it shows so many opportunities where it's it's okay. You know, it's you know there are so many positive benefits of actually making that shift into into the low carbon world, and, and society ends up being a hell of a lot nicer than you know another koala gone because we've bulldozed yet another forest. So where would you go for a picnic? Oh, there aren't any forests left. Um, you know, that's not that's not a pleasant life. So finally, I want to put you all on the spot and get you all to give one single piece of advice to our listeners. I would imagine there would be a lot of people who have been listening to the discussion today who would come from this wanting to do something personally about the climate emergency, but not know how best to do that. Um, so what's the single positive thing that they could do that might help to change the story here? Perhaps, Liz, if we start with you. In changing the story rather than the biggest impact in, in reducing our, our greenhouse gas uh, footprint. Well, uh, what's the single most positive thing that someone listening to this could do? Being an evangelist about it um, and and um, hectoring is is clearly not the way. But in but in gentle ways because it's easy to have the conversations with like-minded people because we're all on the same page, but to to take that message that some people are still not getting um, into the positive 
the positive things that can happen. So, of course, if those people encounter examples and examples and examples, then they might change their mind. Because, again, I think the most important thing is for everyone on the planet to get on board. Imran, what would be your one piece of advice? Walking the talk is always uh, important and ethical. But in this debate, in the climate transition and the pathway th- that we need, we need to mobilize more community action, more, um, uh, and and I think what will be very important if everyone goes out and mobilizes others so that the government in charge actually has policies and measures. So they're, they're, it, it's, it's, it's both. Um, individual actions matter, but collective actions are are much more required. So it is. It is. It. I would say do both. And Shane, the last word to you. What's what's your piece of advice? I would say to people: don't be overwhelmed in the face of the enormity of the issue. Mm. Don't lose hope. Have optimism. Get engaged. Each of us can make a contribution in our own way, whether that is through our professional mechanism, through involvement in a community organisation or through our own personal decisions. Each of us has a power to make a difference and those collective small differences are ultimately going to make a big difference. We have to have optimism. We have a responsibility to future generations to get stuck in and do the best job we can. I mean, I would add to that, like, participate. Write to your local MP. Actually write the letter. Don't use one of those form-generated forms. Ring them up. Uh, show up to protests, go to council meetings, vote, um, organize, join a campaign. You can. You, these actions matter. The world is made by those who show up. Lots of great advice around the table. And it's been fast, fantastic getting the band back together for the uh, <laughs> reunion tour. So let me just say thank you very much, Imran. Thank you very much, Liz. And thank you very much, Shane. It's great to have you back. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So welcome back and thanks once again, Liz, Imran and Shane for a great discussion. Listeners, we're really keen to get your thoughts on what we've talked about today. Jump onto the Facebook group and reach out to us. We are Policy Forum Pod on there. On Twitter, we're Apps Policy Forum or send us an email, go old school podcast at policyforum.net. And if you listen to this discussion and now feel inspired to make policy change in the field of climate policy, you might want to check out Crawford's Master of Climate Change. This degree will prepare you for a career in regional, national and international climate policy, assessment and formulation. And you can find all the information about that at crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study. Now, thanks to everyone who has reached out to us at Policy Forum or via the Facebook group over the last couple of weeks. We always love to hear from you. And we've had a couple of comments I want to pick up on here, and I'm interested in your views here, Maria. Last week, we published a piece by Quentin Grafton calling for Australia to declare a water emergency instead of using the language of drought. Now, on Policy Forum, Jenny wrote, I would like to see the Australian Parliament move out to Western New South Wales, not for a quick visit, but to experience day to day what it's like to live without ample clean water for the needs of your family and the environment. How many MPs could cope for more than one week? New South Wales MPs would, of course, fly in, fly out and then tell us about the wonderful experience. Maria, what do you think about that? Well, I think that MPs could definitely afford to spend much more time on the ground uh, experiencing what it's like to live in these conditions because, of course, you know, MPs have um, a very sort of uh, sort of cosseted life experience compared to most of us a lot of the time. That said, though, MPs do have a really kind of difficult uh, job. But what I think is kind of interesting about what Quinton Grafton has sort of said about the word drought kind of goes to your point, Jenny, which is that uh, by calling it a drought, this is Quinton's argument, by calling it a drought, we don't have to deal with the actual day-to-day and long-term consequences of how the climate is changing, right? And so we can just sort of say these are temporary measures and that when it rains, everything will be sort of fixed. And so getting MPs to sort of experience what your life is like today um, is only the first half of the the issue. You need them to not only understand how this is impacting your lives right now, but how we, what you want them to do to plan for your family to be secure into the future. 
And we've also had a very practical uh, solution proposed by Bill, who wrote, I think that we should stop supply of water to Parliament House while they are sitting for six to eight hours. A few non-flushes might give them the idea. Maria, you've worked at Parliament House. Would you be on board with that idea? Well, you know, Bill... um in exciting news, there is actually a uh, historical precedent for exactly this kind of action. Not quite the same, but it was the great smell of like 1848 or whatever that the Thames uh, was at that stage an open sewer. It was really hot and um, and the great smell was so disgusting as the Thames flowed past the Palace of Westminster that uh, the... Um, the MPs in there decided to finally vote for the money to build a sewer. So I think eight hours is not long enough. That's probably not going to cut it. Um, but yes, there's nothing like, uh, I guess, being personally impacted to, to get you to address an issue. There's a different kind of smell coming from the palaces of Westminster these days. Oh, well, uh, you know, who wants to who wants to touch that one? <laughs> well, Bill, thank you very much uh, for that comment, for, uh, excuse the pun, floating that idea. Um, and so, and thanks so much to Jenny as well. Great to uh, have your thoughts on that. Uh, and a big thank you to everyone else who's commented. Please do keep sending in the comments. You can reach us on Facebook, where we're Policy Forum Pod, on Twitter, where we're Apps Policy Forum, or, or as I said, email us podcast at policyforum.net. Now, Lastly, thank you to everyone who has joined our Policy Forum Pod Facebook group. It's great to see it kicking along so well. Both Maria and I are in there and reading your comments and joining in the conversations. So please join if you haven't already. And I'd like to say hello to this week's new members. So hello, Julie, Patricia Smith, Troy West, Sadana Sen, Chris Draper, Jen McNally-Gallagher, Jackson Hunt, and Harsimrang Singh. Welcome all, and do say hi to Maria, Yulia, and the rest of the pod team while you're there. And if you liked today's episode, you might want to hit subscribe. You can find Policy Forum Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Today's episode has been produced and written by me, Martin Pierce, with extra writing by Lydia Kim and Yulia Ahrens, and editing by Branko Svetijevic. We'll be back next week with another episode of Policy Forum Pod. But until then, from me, Martin Pierce, cheerio. See you later. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.